Thank you so much, Chris. A beautiful, beautiful message for us. And there is a scarlet thread that runs through the Word of God, the thread of redemption. And I pray it runs through your life in every, every way. Thank you so much, choir, and thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning. And beautiful songs that that have been shared. I'm grateful for these songs that Doug has selected. You know, honestly, I, I thought after the final play of that game last night, we might be singing Ave Maria this morning, you know, Hail <laughs> <Hey>, Mary, <laughs> or maybe a chorus of nothing is impossible, right? That, that would work as well. <laughs> All right. Well, I tell you, that was a wonderful game, but uh, truly the greatest things happening in Knoxville today is the celebration of the risen Lord, right? I pray that is the biggest thing in your heart this weekend, and I pray that God will make Christ big in our lives today. You know, it's a beautiful day that the Lord's given to us. I was up early and uh, having some time in the Word and up on the upper parking lot here, as I often do, praying, and just a beautiful, beautiful sunrise coming up over the church this time of the year. It's just a glorious thing to see on Sunday mornings. But I was thinking also this morning, it's a sunrise for a brand new church as Emmanuel Church, a church that we planted a few weeks ago, is officially beginning this morning. This is actually their first day. They've gathered for about eight weeks and building the pioneer team, but today is really the, uh, the inauguration day, the beginning of this brand new church. So I thought it'd be good for us just to bless them today as we have our time of worship to give thanks for this church that the Lord has brought to life by his grace and out of our own church. So let's pray together. Would you do that with me? Father, we come to you and thank you for the scarlet thread of redemption. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible tapestry of your grace. And Lord, thank you that you are faithful that where sin has abounded, yes, in, abounds in our lives in so many ways, Lord, we praise you that grace has superabounded. Lord, we thank you for this new day that you've given, especially this new day for Emmanuel Church. Lord, I pray that as they begin today officially, that they will experience the name Emmanuel, God with us. I pray, Father, that you will bless our brothers and sisters. I pray, Father, that you will raise up an incredible witness for Jesus Christ from this body. I pray, Lord, that until the day of your return, Emmanuel Church will be faithfully sharing the gospel, lifting up Christ, honoring his word, and sending out the good news that Jesus saves. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as partners with them to partner in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask your blessings upon Pastor Jared and Derek as they lead this congregation. Give them great grace and wisdom. And Lord, we pray that truly you will be with them and make Jesus great in their presence. And now, Lord Jesus, be very present among us. And Lord, may we see you. May we leave knowing 
that we have been in the presence of the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series of messages that appropriate for us as we just launched a church to refocus on being the church. Church refocus, that's the theme of this series. What does the Lord want us to be focused on as his body of believers here at West Park? A church refocused. Now last week we looked at Matthew chapter 16 and we took some time to examine again what Jesus said about the church. He promised that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. He said he would build that on the great confession of Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what incredible hope that we have in the fact knowing that the foundation of the church is not any man, it is not any group of people, but the true foundation is the wonderful revelation of God in Christ. And that gives us absolute assurance, come what may in this world, the Lord's church will go forward and will bring light into the darkness. We want to focus on being that kind of church. But today I thought it would be good for us to take a moment to see what does Jesus focus on when he looks in the church. When Jesus walks into his church, and Jesus does walk in his church, you know that. What is he looking for? What is Jesus focused? You know, it would be very easy for us as a church to focus on what we want to focus on. But what does Jesus focus on when he looks into us as his people? What is his focus? And today I want us to look in our Bibles, if you turn with me to the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, chapter 2. And if you're turning in the Bible provided for you there in the chair, it's page 1028. But I want us to turn here for a moment and this passage is one which opens the book of the Revelation, of course, but it is Jesus as he is bringing a message to seven various congregations of the church that existed at that time. They are in many ways representative of Churches and throughout the age of the church represent types and conditions that can be in the church of the Lord. But the one I'd have us look at this morning is in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 1. Jesus wrote to the, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars... In his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I, knew, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, 
that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the work she did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the presence, in the paradise, rather, of God. Now, in many ways, if we were to examine what Jesus said about this church of Ephesus, and I would say, venture to say, if we were to visit a church like the church of Ephesus in that day, we would probably say, what a church. What an incredible church. What amazing qualities of faithfulness, endurance, commitment to the truth, a willingness even to expose error in the midst of the church and to stand against heresies that can come into the church, a church that is bearing up under persecution and trial, probably we would say, what a church. But what did Jesus see? He saw all of that and he commended the church for all that at Ephesus. He commended them for very many wonderful qualities of their allegiance to him. But Jesus saw something. He saw something that was a very serious threat. Maybe he alone could see it. And here is what was the threat to that church of Ephesus. And I want to put it to you this way. The threat was orthodox unfaithfulness. Orthodox unfaithfulness. Now, orthodox means right, true, right doctrine, orthodox. The church of Ephesus was orthodox. They believed the gospel, they believed the word of God, and shared only the word of God. But what Jesus saw was orthodox unfaithfulness. He saw a church of firm doctrine, a church with a deep allegiance to duty, but a church cooling in warm-hearted devotion to Jesus. Orthodox unfaithfulness. And Jesus said, I challenge you to remember from where you have fallen. Repent, return. He said, I do not want to take away your lampstand, your witness. 
That is a very sobering passage, isn't it? Church refocus. What was Jesus calling this incredible church of Ephesus? A church founded by the Apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy for many years, and also pastored by John, the Apostle. What was it that he wanted in this church? He wanted them to be a church again of one holy passion. One holy passion. And that is what I want us to focus about this morning. And we need to do it individually so that we can do it collectively. Do we have a single-minded, warm-hearted devotion, a holy passion for Jesus? We may be absolutely orthodox, right in our doctrine, committed to our duty, but cooling in our devotion. Now, I want you to notice here, if you would, it's very obvious, I think, but let's just begin here and we'll look at some passages of Scripture. It's very clear here that there is a priority that the Lord Jesus gives to a holy passion. It is an absolute priority. What matters to Jesus? That's a fairly important question, wouldn't you think? What matters to Jesus? That should be fundamentally important to us as his followers. And it's interesting that there really shouldn't be any question about this at all. When we say, what is it that Jesus wants? What is it that Jesus really wants from my life? Honestly, there should really not be any question about it at all because Jesus has always been completely consistent on this issue about what he really wants. And he says it here in verse 4. Notice he says, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at the first. Jesus has always been absolutely consistent on this. What Jesus is first concerned about is the first commandment. Jesus' first concern is the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. What Jesus is first concerned about is the first commandment, do you love me above all? That was his first concern with Peter, right? We've considered that before when Peter failed so terribly and so completely in his devotion to Jesus. What did Jesus ask him when he reinstated him? What did he ask him? You remember, Peter, do you what? Love me. Do you love me? Now, look at verse 4. Notice how personal it is. Just so we'll know how important this is, notice the word that Jesus uses. It does not come across in some of our English Bibles this way. It may say, you have left your first love, but that is not what it means. It means abandoned. Jesus says, 
you have abandoned your first love. The love you had at the first. You have abandoned it. Not that you just lost it. Not that the world took it from you. Not that Satan sneaked up on you and snatched it from you. But you abandoned your love. Now sadly, I look around this auditorium and I know many of you know exactly what that feels like. To have someone you love abandon you. And sadly, there are people in this church right now that we are praying for, and some of them who are in the process of a church discipline situation to bring them back to God because they have abandoned their wives, abandoned their families. Some of you know, some of you are experiencing right now what it means to be abandoned. Some of you know what it means because it feels like emotional abandonment. It has feeling to it. It's not just somebody walked out of your life. It's that they took a part of you with them. That's what Jesus is saying here. You have abandoned your first love. Now friends, if this is Jesus' first concern, what should be our first concern? What would Jesus say about our devotion? What would he say about our relationship with him? What he say? There's still a warm-hearted devotion for me. Or would he say... You really have fallen in love more with something else, someone else, more than with me. Now, if Jesus is so concerned about that, and he is, how do we fuel this holy passion? How do we keep it fueled? How do we fuel a holy passion? So that we continue to, yes, burn with a devotion for Jesus. How do, how do we feel that? Well, you friends, you know, for me, there's nothing like a role model, right? There's nothing like a role model of someone fully devoted to Christ. And I want us to take a look at that role model. I'm going to ask you to turn some of the passages, passages this morning. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, if you would. Turn back to Philippians chapter 3. That's page 981, if you're using that Bible. And I want you to see a role model of someone fully devoted to Jesus with a holy passion. And notice that it is a pursuit. You see, a holy passion for Christ is not something you ever necessarily feel like you have. It's sort of like humility. When you think you've got it, you don't. 
But how do you, how do you pursue a holy passion? How, how do you keep these emotions of, of devotion to Christ and this love for Christ, how do you keep it aflame? Well, there's a pursuit to it. I love biographies. I love to read biographies of people. And they, even more than that, I love to read autobiographies. I love to read people talk about their own life. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, you read from his autobiography, talks about his conversion. And he was at a gathering at a place called Aldersgate over near London. Aldersgate. And he says as he heard someone teaching, and it's interesting what the man was teaching. He was teaching, he had just gotten started on the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Now, how's that for a page turner for you, right? That's what the man was talking about. And while he was talking about this, and he, Wesley heard the scriptures, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt that I did believe in Christ. That's his testimony of that moment of conversion. Now his brother Charles Wesley had come to faith sometime sooner. And he also wrote an autobiography and yet he put his autobiography in his songs mostly. And the autobiography of his conversion is really written in his hymn, And Can It Be? Some of you know that, and can it be? Now listen, this is what Charles Wesley wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening, a life-giving ray. I woke. In the dungeon flamed with light. Now listen carefully. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, I went forth, I followed thee. Now that's Paul's testimony exactly. And I want you to listen to how Paul writes it. Look at chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul talks about the freedom that he experienced in Christ. And then what that led him to in his lifelong journey. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted at loss as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now that is a radically transformed value system because that's what Paul is describing, value. He's using accounting terms here. He says the things that used to be in my bank account, I now count them as rubbish. What used to be in Paul's bank account? Well, if you look at the verses before, it was all his religion. He was up to his eyes in religion. He was an incredibly religious man, but he was seeking to earn his own righteousness. And now he considers that self-righteousness that he attempted to achieve to be equal to a pile of rubbish. And now the surpassing value, his real riches, are the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his Lord, and he is pursuing Christ, a, long, a lifelong journey. It's become a pursuit of Christ. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, you remember this? When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he started a new journey. And that journey was a continual pursuit of Christ. And he describes it this way in verses 10 and 11. He says, here's my journey now. Here's what I pursue, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, he's not questioning whether he's going to be resurrected. He's not questioning whether he's going to earn his salvation. He's already made that very clear. He says, I want to know him. I want to know the reality of his life. And I want to live my life with the same attitude with which he came to his death. I want the resurrected life in the resurrected Christ to be in me. That is my pursuit. I want to know him. A personal pursuit of Jesus. Verse number 12. He says, now I don't consider I've reached the goal. Not that I have already obtained this. Or am already perfect. That is already complete. That I'm, I'm all that I ought to be. But I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. You know what Paul is saying? He's saying I'm in the grip of grace. Jesus has gripped me by his grace and now I'm constantly reaching out to grasp him, to pursue him. I'm running after him. That's Paul's ambition, a pursuit, a holy passion. I'm running after him. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie, Forrest Gump. You ever watched that movie? There's in that movie where Forrest just starts running. You remember that? 
He just starts running. And he runs four times across America. And there's one scene where the reporters come up. What are you running for? Are you running for world peace? Are you running for homelessness? Are you running for women's rights? Are you running for animal rights? What are you running for? And Forrest is just jugging. He says, I just felt like running. (laughs) I just felt like running. What are you running for? Day in and day out. What are you pursuing? What are you after? What do you get up every day and go for? Because friends, I want you to know, if you're not chasing Christ, you're just chasing the wind. And Solomon can tell you all about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. The man did it all. He had it all. He experienced it all, and he said, it's just chasing the wind. But I want you to know something. Chasing a holy passion, chasing after Jesus, is never, it is never a pointless, it's never pointless, it's always powerful. Because listen, listen to what I'm about to tell you. When every day you desire to follow Christ, to chase after Christ. Listen carefully. As you're chasing Christ, he is changing you. As you are chasing Christ, you don't even know it. He's changing you. And that's the promise. There's a promise of a holy passion. As you chase after the Lord, he is changing you. So that even your heart's desires, your ambitions, your goals are being changed and you're really having nothing to do with it. It's not like you're sitting down every month and saying, you know, I got to change my goals. It's not like you have to live by New Year's resolutions that you change every year. You are in a state of a change of priorities because it's happening in you by God himself. Now, David was a God chaser. And he wrote about that in Psalm 37. I'm going to ask you to turn there. I know I'm making some of you so mad you're having to turn in your Bibles this morning. What a sacrifice, right? Psalm 37, page 466 in your Bible there. And I do love to hear those pages turn. You know how I feel about it. The wind of heaven, right? Okay. Don't use your phone. You use your phone, then you're left to your own devices. All right, okay. You bring your Bible. Psalm 37. Listen, listen to the heart. Listen to the heart of someone chasing the Lord. And please, if you're reading off your phone, I'm sorry. I did. I was not. I wasn't a put down. I'm glad you got the Word of God there. However it is. But Psalm 37. Listen. Of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Need that verse if you watched the debate this last week. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass. And wither like the green herb. 
Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Befriend faithfulness. Here it is. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, dear friends, listen to me for a moment. With all my heart, I believe the ultimate expression of idolatry The ultimate expression of idolatry is to pervert the promises of God for selfishness. There is nothing more idolatrous than to take the promises of God and twist them out of context and use them for your own selfish ambition. That is idolatry and all you have to do is turn on the television set And listen to preachers express it today. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prosperity theology is not the message of the gospel. It is a false gospel. And those who espouse it are false teachers. That is not the gospel. The gospel, listen carefully, is not about me. It is about Christ, do not allow people to take the promises of God and pervert them into your selfishness. And you could take this verse, and I could too. And what part do I want to look at? The desires of my heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Prosperity theology is based on a perversion of that one phrase, the desires of your heart. But listen, your heart can be changed so that your desires are God's desires. And how does that happen? What does the first part of the verse say? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, as you pursue Christ, as you delight yourself in Christ, your desires are changed. You know, I was just teasing my daughter Ruth and her fiance Ben a couple weeks ago because they're getting ready to get married on the 21st and they are just goofy in love with each other. And... uh, They think they really know each other. And it's like I heard someone say, it was asked a question, did you, well, how long did you know your, how long did you know your husband before you married him? He said, well, I didn't know him at all. (laughs) What do you mean? You you weren't even acquainted with him? No, I was acquainted with him, but I didn't know him. (laughs) It's like my, so that's what we're telling Ben and, Ruth, I was saying, you know, my, my wife, she thought she was marrying her dreamboat, you know, Prince Charming, and she found out she was burying Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> but you know what? Listen, as, as I have gone deeper and deeper in love with, the, with, with Susan, something about my love for her has made me into almost a neat freak at home. 
It really is an amazing thing. I don't want to be a neat freak. But every time I see something out that's dirty or dishes or, you know, a bunch of clothes, I start thinking about, I don't want her to have to deal with that. And so I deal with it. It's just delighting myself and her has changed who by nature I am. You delight yourself in the Lord. You pursue the Lord and guess what? What used to be important to you won't be so important anymore. And the things that you didn't think were so important become vitally important to you. He will then give you the desires of your heart because now your desires have been aligned with his heart. And when your heart and God's heart get together, friend, listen, it's heaven on earth. And that's what he wants, the abundant life. Now, how do we delight in the Lord? How do we delight in the Lord? Let me just take these last few minutes here just to share with you briefly, very briefly, how do, you, how do we fan the flame? How do we fan the flame of a holy passion? How do we do that? Very quickly. Number one, practice focusing on the beauty of the Lord. Focus on the beauty of the Lord. Your heart's devotion is increased as you focus on the beauty of the Lord. The Lord is beautiful. You're there in Psalm 37. Well, look at Psalm 27. Look at Psalm 27. I just gave you 37.4. How do you experience 37.4? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You experience 37.4 by 27.4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What does that mean? Did David mean, you know, I just want to move in the tabernacle and I'm never coming out? Well, in some ways, probably that would have satisfied him, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, this is what I have asked of the Lord, that I may in my life dwell in his presence, beholding his beauty the days of my life. Now, where do we behold the beauty of the Lord? Well, of course, we see his beauty all around us. We see the beauty in creation all around us. We see the beauty of the Lord as he reveals himself in the word. But folks, let me tell you, here's a danger for you that are students of the word of God, and every one of us should be a student of the word of God. A great Christian writer, A.W. Tozer, said this in his book, The Pursuit of God. And if you've never read that book, you need to read that book, The Pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer started writing that in Chicago, Illinois, when he was on a train to Dallas. He started writing in Chicago. He never slept. And when he got to Dallas, what he had was the manuscript of that book. And I want to tell you, it is powerful. The pursuit of God. But here's what he says. He says to the 
churches like the church of Ephesus, like West Park, if we're not careful, we are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We are in danger of losing God amid the wonders of his word. We read his word, but we don't see his face. We have to pray. You know what you need to pray? When you open the Bible, maybe this will help it to you, help you right now. When you open the Bible, pray your Facebook prayer. Pray your Facebook prayer. Here's what I mean. Pray this, Lord, let me see your beautiful face in the book today. Let me see your beautiful face in the book today as I read it. Pray your Facebook prayer. Do your own personal call to worship. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ to you. Fanny Crosby was a blind poet, but boy, could she ever see. And she wrote poem after poem that was put to music. We sing some of them still today, but one she sang about was this. More about Jesus, let me learn. More of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More about Jesus in his word, holding communion with my Lord, hearing his voice in every line, making each faithful saying mine. More, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Focus on the beauty of the Lord. Focus on the wonder of the gospel. The wonder of the gospel. The great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, over 140 years ago or so, he and his song leader, Ira Sankey, were holding a service in England. They went out into the countryside one day to have a service for the Romani. Today we sometimes refer to them as gypsies. And while they were getting back into the carriage, a young mother ran with her little son and held him up to the carriage. And Ira Sankey felt led, strangely led, to pray for this little boy. And he reached out his hand, put it on the head of the little Romani boy, and said, Lord, I feel led to pray your blessings on this boy, that he would come to you, and that he would come to bring thousands to Jesus. Well, that little boy was converted later on. And he became an evangelist in the early part of the 20th century. He held campaigns in churches and cities across this land and across Europe. And he was known as Gypsy Smith. And when he was on his deathbed, 
a young preacher came to him and said, Dr. Smith, can you just tell me in some way what's been your secret? What's been that which has driven you through these years? And Gypsy Smith, with a little tear running down his eye, on his deathbed, said, if there's been anything that's been powerful in my ministry, it's this. I never lost the wonder of it all. I never lost the wonder of it all. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. So we are. We are the children of God. That's what we are. We we are the children of God. That's a, that's a wonder, isn't it? I'm not surprised that some of you are children of God. But me? Now, that's incredible. To be known completely and loved unconditionally and saved eternally. What a wonder. Need to focus on the reality of eternity. Focus on the reality of eternity. How do we keep a passion? Focusing on the reality of eternity. The great British author, Sir Walter Scott, had a sundial in his garden. You know what the sundial said? The night cometh. The night cometh. That comes from something Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is yet day. For the night is coming when no one can work. Friends, life is so short. Can you believe it? Can you believe what month of this year we're already in? This another year is almost gone. Don't waste it. Don't waste this little hyphen of time that the Lord has given to you. The reality of eternity. This is the time. Inside a small church in Staunton, England, there's a corner tablet, has a dedication as a memorial. And here's what it says. Listen carefully. Just listen to this. In this little church, it says, in the year 1653, when all things sacred throughout the nation were destroyed and profaned, in the year when all things sacred in the nation were destroyed and profaned, this church was built to the glory of God by Sir Robert Shirley, whose Singular praise it was to have done the best things in the worst of times. Whose singular praise it was to have done the best things in the worst of times. What a worthy epitaph. What the result of a holy passion that we in, for many of us perhaps, what is the worst of times we have committed because of Jesus to live for the best things. 
And that's the focus of the preciousness of our opportunities. The preciousness of opportunities. Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially those who are of the household of faith. The immensity of eternity and the incredible opportunities, the precious opportunities we have every day. When I was a young minister, I was privileged to serve for almost seven years with a man named Dr. Richard Snavely. He's now with the Lord and I was honored to conduct his funeral. Some of you know Pastor Bill Gowder. Uh, his wife, Becky, was Pastor Snavely's daughter. And she was in my youth group. <laughs> but Pastor Snavely, we used to have a nickname for him. You know what we called him? Dr. Daytimer. Any of you remember the little Daytimer? He was a fanatic about him. You didn't have your Daytimer, you were in a heap of trouble. And he had a little Daytimer, he was writing it all the time. He had the same gold, little gold pen. He never lost it. He just, phew, got your daytimer, Sam? Look right here. This is the way you use it, honey. He, he bought me daytimers. I had stacks of them. But here's what he would say. Now, use your daytimer, but then he would say this. Always leave room, Sam, for divine interruption. Always leave room for divine interruptions. I want to tell you, folks, God's all around you. Every room you walk into, he's already there. Every building, every cul-de-sac, every street, every football game, he's already there. He's working. Do not miss the divine opportunities that he brings you away. And when you know that God's at work and you're working with him, you know what? It doesn't seem like a job at all. <laughs> Find something you love to do and do it and you'll never want work a day in your life. Make your day serving Jesus following Jesus, looking for him, seeing his face in the book, worshiping, pursuing him, and being aware to opportunities. Passion will be there. Father, I pray now that you'll bless this word. Thank you for these people who've listened as I've sort of droned on and on. I thank you, Lord, that your spirit stirs in us holy passions. Lord, may we all, I pray for myself more than any, stir, renew those passions to pursue you, I pray. With all of our heart, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's just sing about that.